Welcome to Present Value. Hey everyone, Brady here. I'm in the studio with Harrison Job, who is the host for this episode. For the first time on Present Value, we actually have not one guest, but two in the studio. Mark Nelson, the Dean of Cornell University's Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management, and Professor Robert Libby. Both are longtime Johnson professors, experts in financial accounting, and also have academic interests in behavioral economics and decision-making. Yeah, this was an outstanding conversation between you, Dean Nelson, and Professor Libby, which we recorded in late 2018. For our listeners, this episode is structured into two main parts. First, they discuss financial accounting fraud, what it is, why it happens, and they give some instructive real-world examples. Then, the second part turns to a discussion of new accounting regulation rules that have to do with how companies recognize revenue. It's exceptionally educational, both in the sense that listeners will walk away with a general understanding of these new rules, but also they'll have a feel for the nature of future financial frauds under these new rules. Both Dean Nelson and Professor Libby bring decades of expertise and experience to the table for this conversation, and it was great to have them walk us through financial fraud and some of the potential implications of the new revenue recognition regulations. Thanks for outlining the episode. I'd like to emphasize that this episode really is for everyone. There are just a few points that get a bit technical, so for our listeners who aren't accounting aficionados, hang in there, I promise it's worth it. And now, Present Value with Harrison Job, Dean Mark Nelson, and Professor Robert Libby. Mark Nelson is the Anne and Elmer Lindseth Dean here at Cornell University's Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management. Nelson received his bachelor's in business administration from Iowa State University and his MA and PhD degrees from The Ohio State University. His teaching focuses on corporate financial reporting and intermediate financial accounting. He served four years on the Financial Accounting Standards Advisory Council of the Financial Accounting Standards Board and has received many teaching awards. His work has been featured in the Journal of Accounting Research and Accounting Review, among others. And Robert Libby is the David A. Thomas Professor of Management here at Cornell. He received his B.S. at Pennsylvania State University and M.A.S. and Ph.D. at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is a two-time recipient of the American Accounting Association and American Institute of Certified Public Accountants Notable Contribution to Literature Award, has won many teaching awards, and has authored multiple best-selling accounting textbooks. Professor Libby and Dean Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value. We're looking forward to a great conversation. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Harrison. Professor Libby, before we get into it, I'd like to start with your background. What got you interested in accounting and financial fraud? Well, this kind of developed through my whole history as I decided that accounting was for me. And uh, one of the things that I found to be most interesting was really how much flexibility there was in accounting. You know, when you first learn about accounting, you realize you think that it's just all arithmetic, but then you realize after a while that there's a huge amount of judgment and a lot of flexibility, even in well-written accounting rules. And of course, when that's the case, we know that human nature sometimes will lead some people astray. 
So I became very interested in accounting standards, regulations, and how really the whole enforcement mechanism worked. Thanks, Professor Libby. Dean Nelson, can you share your general research interests and focus? Sure. So, Harrison, I actually came to Cornell in 1990, and uh, one of the primary draws for me was that Bob Libby was at Cornell because he was already a leader in this research area. Both of us work in an area of research that spans auditing and financial reporting, and it's really interesting to look at situations in which there is this flexibility in the rules and uh, there's the ability for clever folks to structure transactions in a way that might not be consistent with the intent of the rules. And so you can you can look at things from the perspective of a manager, but then also the perspective of an auditor that's trying to police that behavior. It's a very rich research area and one for which uh, Cornell has a long tradition. To kick us off, let's get into, quote, earnings management. So as I understand it, earnings management is a deceptive practice where managers fudge the financial statements, usually to paint the company in a more favorable light to hit their earnings targets. You know, they do these things like accounting for goods that they know they'll actually sell in January, but they pull them into December's earnings to inflate their year-end reports. And of course, there are dozens of, of other examples. Can you elaborate on why this is so problematic? I'll admit that I think the phrase is, is kind of funny, quote, earnings management seems a bit innocuous. I mean, you could, you could argue that every manager is trying to manage their earnings. They're trying to make their earnings go up. But what we want is for the accounting to, in a neutral, transparent way, reflect exactly what's going on. So if the manager is doing great promotions and selling more product and therefore revenue's higher, accounting should reflect that and everybody's happy. On the other hand, if sales really aren't higher in terms of the underlying transactions, but the manager is playing around with the accounting so that the accounting isn't neutrally, transparently reflecting what's actually going on, that's where we're in trouble. And so we spend a fair amount of time trying to think about circumstances in which accounting does versus does not reflect the underlying economic reality. So when we're talking about earnings management, one distinction is whether or not it's inappropriate from an accounting perspective. Right. And one of the most inappropriate and, and indeed fraudulent earnings management activities is revenue recognition fraud. Professor Libby, can you explain why revenue fraud can get so egregious? It's really all a result of the arithmetic. We know that net income is revenues minus expenses. So if you're interested in increasing net income, you can either understate expenses or overstate revenues. But the arithmetic tells you that you can increase net income by really a limited amount when you're messing with expenses. The amount is limited to the amount of expenses. And expenses tend to look a little bit strange when they start to approach zero, whereas revenues can be overstated by an infinite amount. So basically, there's no fundamental limit to overstating revenue. For our listeners, Professor Libby, can you explain a few basic principles behind revenue recognition guidelines? Up until this year, we had very precise rules that told you how much and when to recognize revenue. And these were pretty common sense ideas that just about everybody could understand. You have to have delivered the good or service, 
And then there has to be evidence that customers actually have agreed to pay you. Just because you deliver a good or service, it shouldn't be a revenue if you're not going to get paid. And then, of course, there's this issue of how much. One of the examples that we've talked about before, Professor Libby, to illustrate revenue recognition fraud is this case of Osiris Therapeutics. So for our listeners, Osiris researches and develops medical products, including bioengineered stem cell and tissue-based products. They settled with the SEC in November 2017 for, quote, wide-ranging fraud for artificially exaggerating sales figures, a.k.a. toying with revenue reporting. Can you give us some color on what Osiris was doing? So Osiris Therapeutics was really continually in trouble, not meeting its targets. And they did lots of things. So one of the big ideas in earnings management is, well, if we can just move earnings earlier from next period to this period, this year's earnings look great. And they did this lots of different ways. They backdated documents. They recognized revenue upon delivery of products that were held on consignment because that isn't really a sale because if the customer doesn't sell them, uh, then it isn't a revenue. They then started using fictitious pricing data and then eventually started booking fictitious transactions, just making things up. And there are a number of cases like this. And of course, these rules were written so that it was relatively easy to prosecute people who violated very straightforward rules. So one of the things that I think many people would think of is what in the world would lead people to do this? And we have this idea of the slippery slope to accounting fraud. And everybody who's been in business has been under pressure when you weren't meeting targets. And what you're supposed to do is work harder. So everybody's experienced a year-end sales push. Um, everybody's gone and visited their distributors and tried to get them to accept extra inventory, try to improve payment terms, and so on. But one of the things that comes up is, well, after you've done that for one quarter, what happens? You have to actually do that again next quarter just to stay even. And natural management optimism really plays a big role here because most managers think they'll figure this out for the future. So what tends to happen is the auditors tend to catch this by the fifth quarter. You might say, why the fifth quarter? Because that ensures that you've been through at least one annual audit. I think Bob's got a great example here because they're, they're just throwing in the kitchen sink. And one of the things that's interesting to think about when someone's going into fraud Early in this slippery slope are people doing things within the rules to try to motivate employees to work harder or, you know, do some sort of a special promotion to try to boost sales right at the end of the of the quarter. They run out of those capabilities and then they start going down the road that, that Bob's describing. And when you find someone like Osiris who's just giving you a, a wonderful almost menu of all the things that someone can do, uh, it highlights the the various ways people can play with revenue. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Let's get into some research. What has the academic research taught us about accounting fraud? Well, it, it turns out that this is an area where there's quite a bit of Cornell-related research. First, let me just tell you about two studies that both Mark and I helped supervise. These were actually conducted by two Cornell doctoral students uh, that Mark and I supervised during their dissertation stage. 
The first project I want to tell you about is by Scott A.C., one of our great doctoral graduates at the Johnson School, who's now assistant professor at University of Iowa. He published this paper in a great journal called Contemporary Accounting Research. He demonstrated that a major factor that leads managers to take the first step down the slippery slope to fraud is the timing idea that if they're going to do something this period, it's not going to come back to bite them for about five periods. And their natural optimism uh, leads them and encourages them to overestimate their ability to compensate for that current period earnings management in that next period. And then Tim Brown's thesis, uh, he's now an assistant professor at University of Illinois, and this paper was published in the Journal of Accounting Research, demonstrates a major factor that leads managers to take further steps down the, sl the slippery slope. And what tends to happen is if you engage in a little bit of earnings management, that changes the manager's beliefs about the appropriateness of that act. So it makes it easier for the manager to rationalize the next step down the slope. So a larger amount of earnings management in that future period. And another interesting part of this study is it shows that the SEC's focus on egregious examples helps managers rationalize their less egregious behavior. So there's actually a practical suggestion here for the SEC, and that is that they actually need to prosecute both egregious and less egregious examples. I think that's a wonderful example, Bob. One of the questions that come out of these things is when people say, so how do, how do good people do bad things, right? And the, the point here is that it's seductive. There's, there's this interest in making yourself appear better, making your company appear better. Hey, that could be good for your employees. That helps you uh, reach various uh, uh, goals that you've set as an organization. And then you, you, you make a little compromise, that gets rationalized, the next compromise is therefore easier to compromise, and it pulls you down that slippery slope. And, uh, you know, what, what Scott and what Tim did from their thesis work, I think, really, really provides some, some great evidence there. Another study that I was involved in actually worked with auditors and built a database of 515 different examples where auditors talked about their client trying to manage earnings. And a lot of the action there was in the area of revenue recognition. So, you know, here's, here's a couple of examples. These are, these are quotes. Uh, recorded sales for product loaded on the truck at their dock on 1231, but not picked up by the independent trucking firm due to weather conditions. Okay, well, it hasn't been shipped. They were counting it as a sale before year-end, but it hasn't gone off the dock until after year-end. That accelerates revenue. What if you want to postpone revenue? Here's a quote. A client managed earnings by not shipping product, which was available for shipment, merely because their quarter then ended had already reached their budgeted levels. So you can see that just that one example right around cutoff, there are these actions that can be taken uh, that are cognizant of goals and that aren't really adhering to the letter of the law. There are a lot of examples like that. And those examples are in the context of our current guidance, which is pretty precise about what you are and what you aren't allowed to do. So, so really, this is wild. People make these small choices and then rationalize them. 
against the egregious examples that you mentioned the SEC actually prosecutes because it seems like, oh, there's this small thing I'm doing that isn't so bad compared to something massive. Still, I have to ask, though, Professor Libby, could you share a few more examples of companies committing revenue recognition fraud to give our listeners a broad flavor of how this can look? Yeah, come on, Bob, give us some really juicy ones, some ones where we'll look at it and say, what were they thinking? How did they get away with it? Well, it turns out that in both of these cases, um, I believe that they're not going to get away with it. And let me tell you about the first one. And this is the one that I go over uh, with our MBA students on the first day, because I don't ever want to see their pictures in the newspaper with a number uh, as opposed to a name under their photo. The first one is La Nature's. And this is a particularly interesting one because the company initially had a decent idea. And they were relatively early in the natural beverages market. So they had a good chance to make a good living. But that wasn't good enough for them. It's very, very clear. To make a long story short, they reported revenues growing from $40 million to $275 million in just six years. It turned out that after those six years, revenues were actually still $40 million. So that's a pretty big overstatement. And it turned out that $800 million worth of debt was issued based on those statements. So it's not a truly gigantic accounting fraud, but $800 million isn't nothing. But the thing that everybody should learn about this, and I actually put a chart up on the screen for the students, is that this fraud resulted in 70 years in federal prison for a total of nine individuals. So the punishment can actually be very severe. And just to mention one other, and this one has to be mentioned for two reasons. One is it truly dwarfs the La Nature's fraud. This is the Homex of Mexico fraud. The SEC charges here that they made up $3.3 billion worth of revenues. The thing that's so interesting about this one, here's a chance to bring in modern technology. This is a company that's supposed to be building houses. And the nature of this fraud was discovered using satellite imagery. They had reported that they had built houses on every lot in a number of subdivisions. But of course, the more recent satellite images show they hadn't even bulldozed the, for the roads yet there. So again, this stuff does happen. Um, and again, the losses to investors, in this case, institutional investors and lenders, will total about $3 billion. So how do these people get caught? How do regulators uncover accounting chicanery? Dean Nelson, maybe you can help us understand this one. So auditors have the role of, of attesting to the accuracy of management's financial statements. And so they need to do testing to determine whether or not uh, the revenue numbers and the related assets that are shown on the books actually exist, are complete, are accurate, all that good stuff. And they do testing related to that. And, and getting back to this idea of the slippery slope and the idea that if in year one I borrow from next year's earnings, well, then in year two, I have to borrow more to show yet more improvement. 
auditors are aware of those patterns, and they do testing to see whether or not uh, the numbers that are showing up in any one period uh, are, are accurate. So a uh, simple example, let's say someone makes up sales and add sales and a related receivable to their financial statements. Well, then an auditor checking to see whether that's accurate will go and look in the next period to see whether those sales were actually collected. Did they get the cash? It's really hard to manufacture cash out of thin air. So if the sales weren't collected, then the auditor will see that accounts receivable keep getting higher and higher and higher. And they'll start asking, okay, well, are those receivables real? So there's testing that can be done to discipline this. And that's why it's really hard to keep these things going year after year. And when you see, you know, a four or five year fraud, it's, it's that much more egregious. It suggests that this disciplining process of auditors monitoring and ensuring the accuracy of the financial statements hasn't been working as well as it should. And then it's up to the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Justice Department to actually prosecute these frauds. Some of them don't reach the level of a felony. And, you know, many of these are settled. But the big ones that we've been talking about aren't just settled. These are brought to the Justice Department. And one of the things that the SEC has done that I was always just very complimentary about was they realized that most of these frauds were going to be in revenue recognition. So they played a big role in developing these standards and making them precise from a regulatory perspective. So there would not be questions what the rules actually implied in these cases. Uh, but now things are going to be a little bit different, and there are some new worries. And if I can pick up on that, one of the interesting things in any regulatory regime is that when there's change, then everybody who's part of the financial reporting process, so investors and managers and auditors and regulators, everybody has to kind of adjust to those changes, and it, it takes a little while to settle down. So over time, the SEC created a fair amount of precise guidance that was codified in something called SAB 101. And now we're going to have a change in revenue recognition regime. And the question is, how will investors, how will managers, how will auditors adapt to that new guidance, which offers potentially new opportunities for people playing games with revenue? Thanks so much, Professor Libby and Dean Nelson. I think you've laid out some really nice groundwork to help us understand revenue recognition fraud. Now let's shift into how things are going to look moving forward. I understand that in 2018, there was an overhaul of revenue recognition guidelines that have a pretty major effect for some companies. Can you explain how these revenue recognition guidelines used to work and then take us through the new rules? You bet. So traditionally, we had something called the realization principle. And the idea was that you recognized revenue when it had been realized or earned. In other words, the, the seller delivered. And when it was essentially collectible uh, in the sense that you had cash or you had a receivable that uh, was of high value. And there was various guidance associated, very industry-specific oftentimes, to help people decide, well, when has the seller actually delivered? And when does the seller have an asset from the buyer that's, that's a real asset. So, you know, did the seller do what they needed to do and has the seller gotten paid? And the guidance essentially wanted a fair amount of certainty on each of those. 
So the seller really has to be kind of done and it's really clear what the seller is going to be paid for purposes of getting to recognize revenue. And if you don't get to recognize revenue, what you have to do is defer it. You wait, you put it off into the future. Now we're in a world where instead of having maybe 200 different industry-specific uh, pieces of revenue recognition guidance, we've kind of come up with the one grand unified theory of revenue recognition. And that's uh, codified in something called ASC 606. And it's also converged with international financial reporting standards. This is actually guidance that uh, the international folks and the U.S. folks uh, worked very successfully together to, to promulgate. Excellent. Thank you. So let's take this example I've cooked up of a consulting firm. Let's say they're contracted to earn a $12 million bonus at the end of the year if they meet some certain performance threshold for their client. Back in the day, of course, they would just recognize this revenue when they actually hit that performance threshold. But as you explained, the new guidelines are different. So what should this company do to recognize their revenue if they think they have, let's say, a 50% chance of achieving that performance threshold and that $12 million bonus? That's a great example. So first, let's start about how we used to handle it, okay? And the idea how we used to handle it is we'd say, well, until that contingency is achieved, until you've actually passed whatever the performance threshold is that enables you to earn that bonus, you don't recognize any revenue. Okay? And so think of that as conservative. In, in some ways, we're distorting reality. I'm going to change your example. I'm going to say there's a 75% chance that we're going to make the bonus. Well, we think we're going to make the bonus. So before we reach that threshold, you could argue that we're understating our expected revenue. After all, we think we're going to make that bonus. And when we're talking to stakeholders outside the firm, we're acting like we're not. Maybe people aren't buying shares of stock in the company that they would buy if they saw that higher expected revenue. So there's a distortion by being conservative. On the other hand, people are more irritated when they buy stock and lose money than when they don't buy stock, right? And so the idea of conservatism is we're not going to let anybody count on the firm reaching that performance threshold until they've reached the performance threshold. We're going to make sure it's revenue before we treat it as revenue. And that's how we've handled things for quite some time. The new revenue recognition guidance handles this differently. The idea of the new guidance is that you're going to, at time zero, at the commencement of this contract, you're going to go in there and you're going to figure out what your transaction price is. And that transaction price includes fixed and variable components. So you might have some fixed base fee, but then you've got this bonus, which we'll call variable component. And you're required to estimate some chunk of transaction price associated with that bonus. You can either use the most likely amount or you can use an expected value. So let's keep it easy. Let's use the most likely amount. What that means is that the firm's going to say, okay, I got a 75% chance of getting this 12 million bucks. I'm going to act like I'm going to get this 12 million bucks. And every month that goes by, I'm going to recognize one twelfth, $1 million worth of revenue, and I'll book a bonus receivable under the assumption that I'm eventually going to hit that threshold and I'm going to be owed that 12 million bucks. It's doing a pretty good job of conveying what I think is going to happen. But if that doesn't happen, if late in the year 
I find out that I was optimistic in my ability to meet this threshold, I'm going to deliver some very bad news to some investors. I'm going to have to reverse out all that revenue. I'm going to have to write off that receivable. That's so interesting because the reason why markets work, of course, is because of information. These changes seem like they're just providing a higher granularity of information. What kind of effect do you think this is going to have on the markets, on industry analyst reports, for example? It seems like there's just a lot more to dig into with these new revenue recognition guidelines. No, I think you're right, Harrison. I mean, markets depend on information, and markets also depend on confidence in that information. And so when we talk about auditors and we talk about regulators, they exist to provide information and assurance that financial statements are accurate and that the information is accurate. So how do people adjust to this new regime? Well, first off, if you're an auditor, you're going to want to make sure that you're having the client do a really good job of policing these estimates. Do they really have a 75% chance of hitting that $12 million bonus? What sorts of processes and procedures do they have in place to make sure that their estimates are as accurate as they can be and to monitor how they're doing? All of that's going to have to be really important in here. Now, you'd think the company would have those processes anyway because they're signing these contracts and they want to get paid. So they ought to exist, but now we have to make sure they exist. Right, because these estimates, they they exist internally, right? I mean, a company ought to roughly know where they're at and where their final revenue is going to be. At least you hope they do. And so now it's sort of like we're taking this internal data and making it more public. Yeah. And now imagine you're an investor and you're looking at an organization that enters into these kinds of contracts. Well, you're going to want to have some assurance that this new kind of a revenue number that you're looking at is of high quality. You might, at the worst, you might be nervous about it and downplay the importance of some aspects of revenue because you're not sure that that revenue is actually going to come to fruition. So there's going to be a fair amount of information exchange for people to understand how this works and to provide assurance to investors and to other stakeholders that what we've got here is is high-quality revenue. Now, if you think about a company that has hundreds, thousands of contracts, this isn't such a big deal. It ought to just kind of Uh, work its way out over the portfolio of those contracts. But it's going to put pressure on people to make sure that they're monitoring this and and disciplining those contracts effectively. You know, if you take a look at the examples that I've already talked about, and you again think about some of this all starting with managers being naturally too optimistic. You could see in the OSIRIS example where some of these optimistic estimates would have also played a role in them walking down uh, or sliding down that slippery slope. So I think that my biggest concern is this is just going to open more avenues for managers to slide down that slippery slope. Right. So it seems like there's two ways to think about this new revenue recognition rule. One is that, you know, if done correctly, it provides a more honest and better assessment of what the company is doing. The second way to think about this is it sounds like there's also potentially more opportunities for creative fraud. I think that's true, Harrison. And and one other thing that sometimes we discount, but that was really clear to me, for example, when I was serving on on FASAC, is that it takes effort 
to make these estimates. It takes effort to police these estimates. And so another interesting aspect of a, of a change in standard and a more estimate-laden standard is that it just increases overhead. I, I remember when this was getting debated with the Financial Accounting Standards Board, there was a CFO of a company that in exasperation said, you guys don't get it. You're just overhead. We're not in the business of, of accounting for things. We're in the business of selling our product. If you make it more complicated for us to, to handle our risk and to make sure that we're not caught out doing something inappropriate, we have to spend more money on accountants and auditors. And so that's another interesting aspect of this is that, you know, it costs money to do all of this. And you could trade off a little bit of accuracy for decreased accounting overhead and, and be okay in the end. And you can imagine that the auditing firms have been really spending an enormous amount of effort trying to deal with this issue. I serve on the Research Advisory Board of the Center for Audit Quality, and the other members of the board are three other academics and then the lead auditor of each of the major public company accounting firms. And they have been working diligently trying to deal with what's going to end up happening as a result of all the changes that their clients are, are going to be making. Now, they've been working hand-in-hand hand with their clients and with the regulators, I think, in a very good way. But it still remains to be seen, uh, especially, I think, after we have our first economic downturn under the new rules, uh, how well this is going to work. That's a really good point, Bob, because when the economy is roaring along and everybody's doing well, the pressures to engage in this sort of behavior are, are minimized. On the other hand, when the economy does a downturn and people are under pressure, that's when they're looking for opportunities to, to boost revenue, and that's where any kind of chinks in the armor will, will show up. You know, one other point that I want to make, though, is that the people that have been working on this, the, the standard setters that are involved in this, they're, they're trying to do a good thing. And there are a number of aspects of this new standard that I actually think are, are really cool and really helpful. I mean, for example, one of the things that we've had trouble with for a long time are multiple deliverable arrangements, arrangements where you've got some big bundled contract. Think of your cell phone where you've got the cell phone and maintenance and data plan and upgrade rights in this big bundle of products and services. There's been a lot of inconsistency in terms of how companies account for the revenue associated with those. And this new ASC 606 is, is really clear about the process that you go through in terms of busting a partner arrangement like that into its components and accounting for each of those appropriately. So that, for example, the cell phone that you get when you get a contract isn't just treated as a cost, it's treated as you having been delivered a cell phone. And there's a chunk of revenue that's recognized associated with that. So there are some really good aspects to this new revenue recognition guidance, I personally think. But this is one that I worry about, and I think it's going to take some transition and some getting used to it for all involved to be able to handle it appropriately. So it seems like the people who create these estimates for the companies, for the firms, are, are just going to be more optimistic about their estimates. Is that how you see this potentially playing out? So it's interesting to think about how this has been handled historically, mm -hmm. once again. Uh, we used to have uh, guidance with respect to software contracts, uh, where there was some monkey business on, on bundled software contracts. And so what ended up happening with something called SOP 97-2, I don't know why 
that is still in my brain. But that's it impressive. Is. That's impressive. It's not impressive, Harrison. It's what am I not remembering because that is in my brain. But uh, but but that guidance required something called vendor-specific objective evidence (VSOE), and the idea here was okay, if you've got a bundled contract and you want to bust that contract apart and account for each piece separately, you want to do that on sort of the the relative selling prices of each of the things in the contract. Uh, so if I have software that I sell for 100 and a maintenance program that I sell for 50 separately, well, the software should get two-thirds and the maintenance contract should get one-third of whatever the bundled price is. The problem was that people were playing around with their estimates of those standalone prices and using that to shift revenue into one or the other. So it was required that you have vendor-specific objective evidence. It was required that you actually sell those things separately so that you can show that, you know, I have a market-disciplined price here that I'm using to allocate revenue across these different components. Well, what the new guidance does is to say, no, you're allowed to use an estimated standalone selling price for purposes of doing this. You can base that estimated price on what other people in the industry sell for. You can base it on cost plus some margin. You might even base it on the total price after you subtract out the other ones that you know. So you're basing it on some residual. These are different ways to come up with an estimated standalone selling price. And once again, might firms play around with those estimates of standalone selling price? They may. So if you're an auditor, what do you do? You look at their process for estimating standalone selling prices and make sure that it's a reasonable process and that they're adhering to it. Uh, some firms will do this internally. Some firms will hire outside consultants to help them with the valuation. Uh, it's all going to be part of the process of applying this guidance. So what does the first fraud that takes advantage of these new revenue recognition guidelines look like? I guess, you know, my first thought would be they're going to look a lot like the existing ones, except... In some ways, the easiest first place to go is with playing with the estimates. So I think we're going to see the same kind of slippery slope, but instead of starting with a sales push, starting with changing terms, extending payment terms, we're going to see, well, gee, that actually requires work. Um, It doesn't require nearly as much work just to work on your estimates at the margin. So I think that is actually going to be the new first step in the slippery slope to accounting fraud. Yeah, I agree, Bob. And as I think about it, if you're talking about a short-term contract, well, the problem with a short-term contract in terms of, of playing around with these numbers is that you find out what actually happened relatively quickly. So I would look for really long-term contracts that have some sort of performance clauses associated with them. If you're talking about a multi-year contract and you've got far in the future some sort of a threshold that will drive total revenue, that's where you're most vulnerable because you've got this long-term estimate and it's tough to know whether or not you're going to meet that threshold. I guess one other point that's pretty interesting here, and that is, so let's say you're a company that's worried about this. What do you do? Well, you start bringing in more uh, milestones in a contract so that you bust up that long-term estimate into shorter stages, and you can assess progress with respect to those shorter stages. Uh, You have estimates that are tied to those milestones as opposed to some threshold that's way off in the future. I think we're going to see contracts adapt to the new guidance. And that's, that's something that makes me nervous. When the accounting 
tail is wagging the the contract dog, we're we're affecting the world in ways that we don't really want to be. We want to be reporting on the world. We don't want to be driving how contracts are structured. And, you know, with respect to revenue recognition, another big area is leasing. We're going to be seeing changes in accounting guidance uh, resulting in changes in the underlying contracts and the risk-sharing arrangements that, that exist between contract counterparties. Really interesting stuff. Well, hey, you can have us back to talk about leasing, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> episode episode two with Libby and Nelson. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, you know, very quickly, Professor Libby, you mentioned this idea that you typically can't really get away with significant fraud for more than five quarters. Do you think that holds with these new revenue recognition regulations? It's it's interesting. I think Mark's point is a particularly good one that it, it'll depend on the nature of the contract. If this is a much longer term contract, you can get a, you can get away with it much longer. And this question is sort of an interesting one is how will the contracts change? Will they be written so that the Uh, milestones are more easily verified. I think that that's going to be the telling point right there. But right now, any any reasonably long-term estimate, it's going to be much more difficult to nail things down within five quarters. And I'm concerned about that. Yeah, that really does seem like a big risk. Is there anything else top of mind that we should be thinking about? Um, I think the first area we're going to see in new research is there's part of the financial disclosures that require that the firm describe the manner in which they're actually applying standards and if any changes in standards have an effect. And I think that the first studies are going to be in that first year, so for uh, the year 2018, would be an analysis of those changes, those changes by industry, And, of course, you know that the SEC is also going to be looking at those. You know that the accounting firms independently are going to be looking at those, you know, across different industries. So I think just descriptive work so that we just know the lay of the land, because now, honestly, we don't know the lay of the land for 2018. Yeah, that's a great point. And one of the things that is going to be the case is a lot more disclosure about revenue is going to be provided in this new regime. And so what's the effect of that on the behavior of investors? And I personally, and this is harder work to do, but I'm intrigued by how the new guidance will affect manager behavior. How will it affect the contracts they write? How will it affect the the structure of deals? Uh, Because once again, when we see that kind of an effect happen, uh, that's a a moment where we should pause and reflect on, on how we're driving underlying economic activity. Okay, so Dean Nelson and Professor Libby, let's just grossly simplify this. In your opinion, at the end of the day, are these new rules going to lead to more or less fraud in the future? Um, It's an interesting question. I think this may just be a result of my age, but I do look back on the wisdom of the sages of old. And uh, it does make me wonder that about that same issue. And I think I'm not particularly optimistic. I think it's going to be more difficult to catch. And I think it's even going to be also be more difficult to prosecute. And I think that's the downside. But again, I think there's an upside. I think that there will be a better understanding of the revenue generating process for firms that don't commit fraud. 
And that's the trade-off. Yeah, I'd agree with what Bob said. I think the particular aspects that we've talked about are the ones that are, that are problematic. When we're talking about the upside, I think it's substantial with respect to this new regulation. One way to think about it is that it's doing a better job of reflecting the complexity of the underlying economics and the underlying transactions that we're seeing in the marketplace today. And so the complexity that's been added here is an accurate reflection of the complexity that exists in the world, and I think that's useful. The worry is when we're adding in something that's estimate-laden and it opens the door and, and adds overhead in ways that uh, maybe we wouldn't be that excited about. That's, that's the part that I'm most concerned about. Mm. And when thinking about managers, this new revenue recognition rule is, of course, just one aspect of financial reporting. So for our listeners, many of whom are managers or aspiring managers, what are some key takeaways and advice from your research? How do we ensure that we're not tempted into making these sort of ethical lapses in managerial decisions? One thing I would suggest is transparency, at least within the organization, is pretty useful. When you have a manager that feels like they have this uh, crushing burden that they have to meet, and they, on their lonesome, are in the position of, of handling some of the accounting that allows them to meet it, that's when you set yourself up for a problem. Uh, and so the, the sort of the classic maxim of don't do anything you wouldn't want on the front page of the New York Times, here the idea is making sure that these uh, challenging decisions, these risk areas are monitored within the organization, that things like an internal audit function, things like a board have visibility to them so that it isn't a person on an island making this call on their own, that they're part of a team and that there's transparency that, that enables others to, to take some of the burden and provide some of the visibility that prevents some of these problems from happening. I think all of that helps. I think Mark has really hit the nail on the head because, again, looking back at history, a lot of the famous accounting frauds, like the one at Monsanto, took place in a particular division. And nobody upstairs was really keeping an eye on what was going on. Since these new rules involve even more judgment, I think that internal controls and the evaluation of internal controls will just become that much more important. And this is also reflected in how audit teams and audit firms police this activity. You don't want an individual auditor who's primarily responsible for retaining their client to be the only one making these judgment calls. You want them to have a home office that they can rely on and expertise that's that's separated from the incentive to retain a client so that they can access that when they're in these problem areas and, again, not be alone and, and uh, instead being supported. I think that's fundamental to the structure of, of big, good audit firms. And, and when we've seen problems get past auditors in the past, sometimes it's been because that sort of a structure was not adhered to. So I find it really interesting that all of these complex financial regulations that we've been talking about and these bad decisions that managers make, often because of the incentives we've discussed, they actually affect real people outside of the firm. They impact pension funds. They impact retirement accounts. Any thoughts on that? 
I think that's another really good point. Um, you know, we can think about some of the famous frauds. The most recent famous one is the Homex of Mexico. And you would say, oh, so, you know, seven, eight billion dollars was probably lost based on a three point three billion dollar accounting fraud. But let's take that apart. Institutional investors lost one billion on their bond portfolios. Who do institutional investors represent, particularly with bond portfolios? Think about pension funds, public pension funds, private pension funds, 401ks, and so on. So those individual investors actually lost a billion dollars. Um, again, shareholders in that case, how about another 600 million? And again, who are shareholders? Again, most of these are held by broadly held pension funds, investment funds, and so on. And let's not, eat, not forget the banks. Think about the effect on the overall economy of Mexico when Mexican banks lost approximately $7 billion on loans to this company. Do you think those $7 billion doesn't affect everyone in the country of Mexico? And it does. So these really have gigantic effects on individual investors and on economies as a whole. Dean Nelson and Professor Libby, thank you both so much for joining us on Present Value. Our pleasure. It's fun. Thanks for doing this. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. Michael Brady, Caroline Wright, Chris Aborico, Bernardo Espinosa, Serena Elavia, James Feld, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tim. I'm your host, Harrison Job. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Pottington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomanko. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.